This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. My son uh, surprised me the other day by asking me if I could recommend a book of philosophy for him to read. (laughs) After looking on my shelves a little bit, I gave him a copy of Plato's Symposium. It seems to have been a pretty good choice, and I think he was surprised in turn that a book of philosophy would concern itself with love. I think that's understandable given what passes as philosophy most of the time, both uh, in Western and Eastern circles. Usually we're used to something much more abstract and unemotional being under the head of philosophy. It's sort of reflected away in the word symposium itself, which in the Greek uh, meant a drinking party, and as it comes down to us in English, is turned into something uh, a lot drier in both senses. <laughs> so I talked to him about it a little bit. I reflected on how It's very unusual the way Plato describes erotic love being the first step on a ladder to the love of the good or of wisdom. And that In the Greek philosophy, there is no sense in which the physical or the erotic, the emotional, are in opposition to the development of spirituality, the way it will turn out to be in Christianity and certainly the way it was in early Buddhism, where celibacy was part of the requirements of, uh, of monkhood and to be part of the original Sangha of the Buddha. Socrates, uh, this dialogue describes how he was taught about love and wisdom by his teacher, who was a woman, Diotima. Uh, 
Uh, we don't usually hear much about her, although I'm sure there's a doctoral thesis somewhere <laughs> outlining history. It might be interesting to know more about the female teacher of Socrates. But in this schema, there is a, an acceptance of the naturalness by which Sexuality is the bond of young boys and their older male mentors, and that that becomes the vehicle for them to develop into manhood, to, to learn the virtues of the community and of the older men. And that for for some, this will develop into a love of higher things, like philosophy, mathematics, things that are increasingly disembodied, but which do not repudiate the physical, or the erotic in the process. Socrates is not described as an asexual ascetic, but rather as someone who has control over his desires, not someone who has completely eliminated them. practice, we sometimes, I would say, get this whole relationship between the physical, the erotic, the emotional, and the spiritual, very upside down. And rather, in seeing as the Greeks did, that we can use experience of physical and emotional love as a ladder to extending love and wisdom into other realms, I would say that most typically people come to practice because that they because of the failures they've had in the level of emotional human love and look to spirituality as a way to bypass that to get around the disappointments they've felt in themselves and in others and to look for something that will give them a sense of well-being and satisfaction that isn't dependent on others. Because that's one of the hallmarks of the way we usually speak about love is that it's reciprocal. It requires 
that we not only love, but be loved in turn. And I think that in many ways, when religion has talked about love, it is taking the route of trying to bypass that need of reciprocity. Uh, In Buddhism there is a lot of talk of compassion and of extending compassion to others. There's very little talk of needing to be at the receiving end of compassion. So often we hear of God's love being the total, perfect, reliable way of being loved in a way that human love can never provide. In sitting, so often we practice with a desire to achieve a kind of self-acceptance, self-awareness, well-being that will make us autonomous, that will give us the sense of deep acceptance and okayness that we have failed to get growing up or from loved ones. Now, sitting can do that up to a point. It's, it's a half-truth. It's important that we find a way to be grounded in our own experience in our sitting, that we allow each moment to be full and complete, uh, that we're not looking for anything outside of that moment's experience. When we settle into that, into in our sitting, there can be deep satisfaction, deep self-acceptance. Yet we should not use that capacity to settle into that state as a way to bypass our emotional needs and vulnerabilities and dependency on others. If anything, part of what we sit with and accept is our vulnerability, our interdependency, our connection with others, and that we allow ourselves to feel the uncertainty or pain involved in that dependency, the same way we allow ourselves to feel the pain in our knee. We're not going to sit and attain a state that is free of 
physical vulnerability or of emotional vulnerability. Our embeddedness in a sangha is an acknowledgement that our practice depends on one another, not just for support and encouragement, but that the very thing we're practicing with is our relation with one another in a sangha. One of the ways sangha relations can go awry is, awry is when everyone in the sangha is oriented towards the teacher rather than towards each other, where everyone thinks the teacher has what they need, has the wisdom, has all the attention that they want, and all they want to do is get to be first in line to, for the teacher's attention. And then everyone else in the Sangha is just a rival for the teacher's attention, right? And everyone is afraid that they're not the favorite, that someone else is the, the one that's getting what they need. See, people can, in one way, look like very good Zen students. And still... be stuck in a very self-centered form of practice. One that either is hooked exclusively into an idealization of the teacher or grounded in a fantasy of, uh, of autonomy. What we need a sangha for is it's a big mirror of our humanity. Our self-acceptance, often very hard one on a cushion, needs to be ex- extended to a deep acceptance of everyone else in the room and what they're going through and who they are. Too often, other people are dichotomized either into the category of they've got it and I don't, or they don't have it, so what the hell do I need them for? practicing, experiencing our common humanity, our interdependency, our vulnerability, our mortality. We share all these things. We are these things. 
our practice is to learn to love what is.